Consummate Athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. We're back with the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, what's up? Well, DW, the miniature dachshund has just... uh, Barked and broken up our first attempt at this intro, so we're we're back. We're trying again for the people. Uh, you are gearing up for a bike packing escapade of sorts. Yeah, I'm actually super excited. My friend Karen and I are gonna ride uh, just a, a you know casual century out to uh, out to this peninsula that has some really great trails. So we're gonna take a day riding, and then we're gonna do a day of trail running and hiking, and then we're gonna ride home. And it's, it's, we could almost like, this is like when ultra runners try to bike pack. This could yeah, be like a, a reality show of so, sorts. Yeah. 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 It's going to be fun. The only sticking point that we're sort of running into right now is that, you know, when we planned this, or when we started thinking about this trip back in, you know, months ago, we were like, oh, this will be super easy. Like all we need to bring is, you know, like a pair of shorts and a tank top and we're good to go. Uh, but it turns out mid-September in Ontario is a little questionable with weather. So now it's suddenly, uh, you know, between like 30 and 50 degrees. So it changes the gear needs significantly as far as like what we need to pack to, you know, actually enjoy ourselves, you know, especially once we get there and then after we finish running the next day. So there's there's a lot more gear needed. Right. So there's a wrinkle in your bikepacking that you're also going to run when you get to this scenic locale. Yeah. So instead of like throwing flip-flops in as per a lot of the advice from bikepackers, we need, you know, full-on trail running shoes. Sure. Um, and of course, then you're going to get that gear sweaty. So you need something to wear into town that's a little warmer. And yeah. There you I'm go. super stoked on it, though. It's going to be really fun. I can't wait to put into play some of the things that we've been told by, you know, bike packers we've had on the podcast, like Joe Cruz. And we should link Matthew, to that one. Matthew Katie way back. Yeah, yeah, we should link to both of them because they both had fantastic advice. And I think a lot more people are, you know, heading out on bikepacking adventures this Well, I think importantly, fall. you know, you two are both very fit young women. Oh, thanks, hon. And But you're doing this as sort of credit card camping, like going to an Airbnb at the far end, you know, so you're not even having to carry camping stuff, right? Or, or even cooking stuff. So you, you, oh, you yeah. are you are edging your way into this slowly and getting that, you know, skill base that, you know, we could call this a fitness for bikepacking, you know, figured out, right? You're getting some reps in the, the bank. Yeah. And not to mention just the, the other, you know, factor of like not immediately dropping a bunch of money on fancy uh, panniers, 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 uh, you I know, guess to, that depends. It's a... and like a different kind of tent because none of my tents would really fit in the side thing very well, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so instead of investing in a ton of gear before we've even really done this that much, we're really testing the waters and seeing how we like it. So I'm pretty stoked on that. I think it's a good idea to get that sort of girls weekend away. Yeah. But you're both pretty you know, active. So it sort of takes care of the day of activity and then you can still go out for dinner and whatever sort of escapades are on this thing. It's not an expedition. It's an escapade. I like it. Yeah. Yes. So we have that. Uh, I have been coaching a lot. I'm... Uh, quite filled you know my heart is is full as they say and you know but also very tired 
<laughs> I thought I was getting a sore throat the other day, which is risky these days to get one of those. Um, but you've, I mean, you've spent so much time like outside, like shouting. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And with big groups of kids and adults or athletes and adults. Uh, so it's been, I sort of was like, okay, maybe just give this like a night of sleep here. And sure enough, I was okay. No sore throat. So we're good. We're in the clear. But it was very fun. So we've been doing these sort of outreach uh, things or we could call knowledge transfer where I'm sort of going and, and coaching the coaches, so to speak, or the ride leaders in different clubs. And then there's also usually some athletes that we do. So it's sort of this one was four sessions over the day. So I was there for a while. Um, but it's really just so fun. And like everyone's so I'm just so psyched on how people are just open to, you know, being sort of beginners in a lot of ways, right? Like these coaches are people who have ridden in some cases for a long time and they're just like excited. Like in some cases they've ridden for a long time, but they've never got coaching. Right. So it's sort of, it's really, really humbling. I think is the word I've been using a lot of just, you know, coaches who are open to feedback on both their skills and, you know, coaching ideas, you know, what is mountain bike coaching? What is skills coaching? So really cool. So kudos to everyone. And if you're interested in finding out about how to bring that sort of to your area, you can always hit us up at consummateathlete.com. For sure. The other thing Peter has going on right now is custom three-month plans plus a phone console. So kind of a package deal. A package deal. So a lot of people, you know, you're starting to hit this this off-season or, you know, what would have been cyclocross season, but it's probably, like, let's be honest, not shaping up to be much of a cyclocross season. And you might be kind of wondering, like, what the heck do I do now? How do I, you know, work on stuff? I've done all the base that I could possibly do. The weather's starting to maybe get a little cooler. Maybe you're thinking about some cross training. Maybe you're thinking about just like, okay, I've got to shorten my rides because the days are getting shorter. Um, so, you know, in that case, it can be really helpful to have a plan to avoid you going over or under what you kind of should be doing where that sweet spot is. Yeah, exactly. I had three or four calls this morning, uh, back to back to back to back. And yeah, just the range, right? Exactly what you're saying. Like someone who's just like crushed base season, they've done a lot of different, you know, sort of quote unquote base blocks and they're quite fit. Um, but now it's like, well, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? Right. There's no, like, it's sort of weird. We're at the end of the season, so to say. And then someone who's got a real serious in, uh, illness that they're going through and sort of just like, what should they be thinking about now? And then, you know, they're trying to think positively about the future and sort of overcoming that. So that's sort of almost on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, and then a full on like body comp, like just need to get moving and, and some dietary, you know, just basics uh, call. So it sort of covers the spectrum this morning, at least. But those would be some examples of what a phone consult is. And I don't coach any of these people, I guess, is the other thing, right? Like I don't I'm not programming them week to week. It's just sort of ideas to take away and, you know, use for a month. But then this this particular like special you're running though does involve you do the phone consult and then from what you guys talk about you build out a three month yeah yeah so plan. it sort of layers it which I always say is like the best value to be honest but the uh, yeah it gives you like a, a three month plan that's made for you like I make it from scratch like your schedule like when are you going vacation what days of the week do you hate training on what days you know do you randomly have three hours on a Tuesday uh, and then what are your goals obviously and it's built yeah off of that. Yeah, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes or just head to consummateathlete.com and you'll find it under the, the coaching page. Yeah, so I mean, on the topic of sort of injuries and illness and uh, plans and, and what is holding you back as an athlete, we and have... And Molly riding her road bike with mountain bike shoes, something that we discuss in depth today. Oh, wow. Very excited. It's like hot button topic. So we're talking about feet again. Yeah. yeah, you guys, the listeners were super psyched, uh, probably one of the most psyched episodes we've had about a podiatrist a lot of foot fetishes out there 
Uh, yeah, so anyway, we, <laughs> we had podiatrist Mark Gallagher on. Not about foot fetish. Not about foot fetish. Not his specialty. Uh, but he goes into all of the listener questions that we got in. We get really into some, some more nitty gritty about, you know, how to best treat your feet, basically. Um, and it's really interesting talking to someone, you know, who, who could just be like, oh, yeah, you need an insole. Oh, yeah, you need like 10 different types of shoes or this, that and the other thing. But he actually gives a lot of really practical, really good advice about how to do how to figure out stuff on your own, how to, you know, make changes to your shoes on your own. Like we talk about, you know, how to lace up sneakers differently to avoid hot spots. Now you he was on just recently a month ago or so. So we'll link to that episode. And maybe if someone's like really like struggling with hot feet, bunions, this type of thing, that probably that first episode would be worth checking out as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because that's more like fundamentals of like, who should you see? What is podiatry? What is a podorthist? This type of stuff. Yeah, it's a bit more fundamentally. This one, we do get into bunions, hot spots, so keep listening by all means. Um, yeah, this one just gets into into depth on a few very specific Yeah, and topics. I really like this. You know, it's I, I sort of group a lot of stuff under skill. Um, and to me, this is just like the skill of ultra running, even cycling, right? Is like people have hot feet and it's like always the limiter, right? And to me, this is like grouped under this idea of skill and practice and, you know, changing things, paying attention. Uh, we might call this gameplay. Sometimes we call this stuff, but trying to figure out like what is the weakest link right now? So if it's not your fitness, it's the fact your foot is on fire and you have to like take your shoe off or your shoe has like no back on it because you have a some sort of tendonitis or bone spur, right? Then this is something that your best money, your best energy is spent on this, this thing. Right. And it see, Oh, he's like, Oh, but it's only my feet, but it's like, there's always a limiter. Right. So I, I really like that we've had him on and that everyone's been really receptive because it's like, it is a common ailment. There's a group of ailments, but it's a common area of ailments. Right. You know, it isn't a limiter. Um, I don't know what you're gonna say. Puppies wearing mountain bike shoes on your road bike. Yeah. That's my mic drop moment of the entire episode. So guys. I'll link to the <laughs> the article that I wrote that sort of maybe spawned this, but it maybe explains the points of view. If people are angry, they can they can at uh, what is this Molly J. Herford? At Molly J. Herford. This is the hill that I'm willing to die on. I don't get into a lot of Twitter wars, but let me tell you, for this one, I will get back on Twitter and I will fight anyone who tells me otherwise. Okay, well, we can cover that in another short stuff, I guess, uh, <laughs> episode on Fridays. But this week is about this, and we have another. Uh, what do we have? We have physiotherapists coming up as well this week. Yep. So absolutely. lots of lots of help for those ailments, those sore spots. Uh, enjoy this episode coming up with Mark Gallagher. Before we dive into this episode, I just wanted to take a quick second to tell you all about Watt Bike, the smart bike that might be able to fuel your trainer rides this season. It is Zwift certified. You can use it on all different kinds of leading training and racing apps. And what's super cool about Watt Bike, other than the fact that you don't need to start setting up your bike on a trainer, is that it has real ride feel technology. So it's actually going to feel like you're out on the road when you are safe inside during the winter or fall or as the weather gets kind of crappy. Uh, it has precise and reliable data. You know you're actually going to get to see what your power numbers are. No, uh, no pretending that your power numbers are higher than they are or feeling bad because they seem lower than normal. And of course, you get free access to the Watt Bike Hub, which is a training application where you can find climbs, endurance, and sprint workouts. And of course, those fun tests to make sure that you're continually improving. 
Uh, to find out more about Wattbike, you can head over to wattbike.com slash US. That's W-A-T-T-Bike.com slash US. Or you can just head over to the show notes at consummateathlete.com for the link right there. Thanks so much and enjoy the episode. How many athletes on the whole do you think have like issues with their feet? I would say which, you know, whichever sport you choose, there'll be a there'll be a component risk you know if you think about multi-directional sports so soccer um pro football anything which has deceleration forces you know that there's always a backwards and forwards movement of the, of the foot in the shoe so that's going to be soft tissue problems um we talked about cycling last time in terms of compressive force mm-hmm. i think you know there's there's different different activities bring different um mechanical stresses on the foot so you know all of whichever one you choose there'll be set types of problems that you'll see so yeah it's uh, and then you've got the issue around shoe fit which is going to be different from person to person it's a bit of a perfect storm really yeah yeah absolutely and i feel like even even shoe fit is a bit of a moving target i find if i even think about myself like year over year like my feet have changed it's not like ah yes when i you know, finished growing at the age of like 14, my feet just never changed after that. And I could just wear the same pair of shoes forever. Um, So yeah, this is, this is a moving target, which maybe leads really neatly into the, the first question that people had, which was how long do shoes last? And in this question, she was asking about hiking shoes, but I mean, I guess we can sort of talk footwear in general, like how long would most shoes last or like, what are signs that it's time to get a new pair? So I think the the hiking shoe is a different one. Most of the hiking footwear industry would use a, a Vibram, V-R-B-R-A-M, mm-hmm. uh, sole unit. So it's essentially an external, it's a tire, it's, it's a rubber tread externally on a, on a shoe. So the outsole is probably not the best uh, um, tool to use as an indicator to change your footwear. It's the midsole which will compress. So I think... You know, hiking shoes are fairly resilient. You might get 18 months, two years out of the boot and it still look fairly decent, but the midsole will have will have sort of diminished over time. So if you put your boot or shoe on a flat surface and if you notice that it has some form of angular variation, so it's not sat square to the surface, you know that it's compressed and it's, it's generating its own angles because we'll all have a different refer to it as a strike angle you know your foot will come mm-hmm. down to the floor at different angles for different foot types so i think when you see a shoe which when you put it on a flat surface doesn't look particularly straight that's probably a time to change on average i'd probably say a trainer a running trainer would be probably you know nine to twelve months maximum dependent on volume if you're doing a 40k week then i think maybe six to nine months if you're doing a 20k week then it's maybe 12 12 months but anything beyond 12 months personally I think you probably need to renew your trainer. Yeah. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of people just assume that it's how it looks. And if there aren't those major signs of wear and tear on the sole, then it's probably totally fine. Um, But yes, I've definitely noticed that in in running shoes for sure. Uh, Yeah. And and also running trainers have that similar external tread to varying degrees. You know, those rubber tire compounds which are there. Yeah. Adidas, for example, they do their, I can't remember what the tire range is for them. But yeah, those things are fairly indestructible. I mean, the, I guess the only, the flip side to that is some of the performance footwear. Um, so the um, New Balance Fuel Cell TC, the 
um, carbon fiber soil units that are degrading really early on because they're classed as race racing shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what they've done is they've taken the traditional mainstream external tread of a trainer and they flipped it and you know they they you know if you're going to pay nigh on 350 dollars for a pair of trainers that degrade after eight to ten runs then i think there's a question there on on ethics <laughs> more than anything <laughs> yes absolutely it's funny you say this now because i'm literally watching my puppy start chewing on my vibram sold north face running shoes and you know what they're proving to be pretty indestructible so yeah uh, yeah you're you're absolutely right um, and then what about like road cycling shoes where the sole or yeah, the sole is carbon, like, so it almost wouldn't really degrade. How do you know when it's time to get a new pair of those? Well, the, st- the stresses that are going to go through the cycling shoe are more about the upper. So that's the side to side uh, stability within the shoe itself. So the, the carbon fiber doesn't degrade. If, obviously, if you do a lot of Cafe stop t- stuff, you'll you'll get scuff marks on the sole unit and your cleats. Um, so I think probably what you need to monitor more with a cycling shoe is probably two things. One is the cleat mm-hmm. quality. So, you know, you don't want to scuff it too much. You don't want to degrade it. You want to try and oil the cleats as much as possible as well to keep them robust. But this sounds horrible, but rotting away internally, you know, you generate a lot of moisture content that invariably is going to sit inside the shoe whilst it dries off. And if, you're, if you've been riding for 12, 18 months, a reasonable distance, probably the degradation within the materials internally within the shoe is the reason why you want to renew it. I have a, I ride a lot outside, but at least 40% of my rides are indoor structured training. And, you know, I renew my cycling shoes every six months because if I didn't, you can imagine what they would look like beyond a certain point. You're generating that much moisture content internally. Yeah. That it's not, it's, it's the upper that degrades and the, and the liners, not, not the external sole unit. Right. So if someone wanted to maybe preserve their cycling shoes like a little bit longer, could they, you know, make an effort to like stuff newspaper in them or use a shoe dryer or something after? Well, I mean, I guess it's probably, it depends what climate you live in. But for me, certainly spring to summer, what I do as soon as I finish my indoor training session is um, I've my my cycling shoes are off i take the liner out and i put them outdoor to to air dry mm. so that preserves the dilemma through winter is you know how are you going to get them to um to recover between training sessions particularly if you're doing consecutive days riding indoors right you know it becomes comes a bit chaotic inside that shoe but yeah i mean that preservation is, is definitely the key there you know do the right things from a, a practical perspective and you'll buy a little bit more time in the in the shoe itself. Yeah. And this might be kind of a, a strange question, actually, but it does remind me a group of my um, friends were chatting about how to preserve sneakers or how to clean sneakers in a way that like wouldn't wreck them. Is there anything that you can do as far as cleaning goes that would be really bad for your shoes, like as far as heat or a certain type of detergent or anything like that? I mean, if you look at the materials and, and how they're built, you know, the adhesives are robust within reason. I literally, I came from from one of the labs that I work with this morning. I was looking to modify um, a cricket uh, shoe for, for one of our players who had a fracture of his big toe and we were trying to build a modification into the sole unit. And what we had to do is we had to section his midsole, so literally take a saw, cut all the way through it. And imagine our surprise that when we did that, there was virtually nothing that we could bond to. I mean, the the composition was 
or scary really you think about cricket i mean cricket's not a familiar sport for the u.s i guess but um you know they generate a lot of again deceleration forces lots of turning um so it was a real surprise to see the composition of a, a fairly mainstream manufacturer as well but not much there so if you put a trainer into the wash for example you've got to be careful of one at what heat you put it in at and mm-hmm. secondly is what what detergent so you know antibacterials that i would use for my cycling kit for example i'd use in a trainer if i was looking to to to, to wash that put it on a delicate spin and air dry it afterwards but yeah yeah and also put the um the trainers into um i don't know what you class it as you know a laundry bag mm-hmm so at least it keeps it as a pair, um, and it doesn't. It's not exposed to the same amount of micro trauma when it's in the in the uh, in the drum. Right. So treat it like you would like fancy lingerie, basically. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> treat it with the same respect. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Uh, okay. So the next question. I thought this was really interesting because you know we've talked about insoles a fair bit, and I know you're involved with you know some development of them and stuff. Would someone wear an insole in cycling shoes or ski boots or stuff like that? Or And if so, would it be the same insole that they would wear in like a running shoe or, you know, their daily use shoe? I think the concept, you know, so you always ask the question, what's the objective with whatever we're putting inside footwear? And actually, when you're on the bike, clearly the forces that you generate are going to be very different from when you're on the land. Mm-hmm. So I think you know, the design composition of what you put inside a cycling shoe needs to reflect the environment it's going to work in. And if you think of most of the things we put inside footwear are, are particularly sort of rear foot design. So you'll see things like posting or wedges on the back or underneath them. But actually when you're on the bike, you know, the interface is the front part of your foot. So that's where you might start looking at um, things you put into the cleat systems. Mm-hmm. The one area that I think there's definite value in terms of looking at things inside footwear on the bike is when you're trying to reduce hot spots so i think oh, we spoke that last time next about question, um, so. <laughs> um that was our, our next question was dealing with hot spots so that's actually a perfect uh so it has a lot of pressure that is that it's weight bears through so when you think about that on, on the carbon fiber interaction you want to try and equal the pressure distribution out from front to back it's just loads of physics you don't want to create distinct high loading points Mm -hmm. so i think the role for things inside footwear on a bike for me is to try and equal that pressure distribution through your foot um so you take a caster working model of somebody's foot and you build a a framework that tries to share the load across those key loading areas you'd use a very thin material as the framework because you don't have much space to work with inside the cycling shoe and you'd also use cushioning mid layers and top covers you know so but it comes back to objective i think the mechanical approach so again the things we do within running footwear where we may be trying to create a bit of a positional bias Mm -hmm. is not is not as important on the bike um but it can still be a design characteristic you could build into things on the bike i think if you if you look at the numbers that i deal with on it on a yearly basis i'll probably deal with a dozen to 20 cyclists, whereas my running population, I'll be dealing with hundreds. Yikes. (laughs) 
Uh, I yeah, I mean, I guess that makes that makes sense. Um, and a lot of cyclists, I feel like, wouldn't even if they had hot spots on their feet, their first reaction would actually be more like a full bike fit versus uh, going directly to the foot problem. Because I think a lot of the time, you can probably deal with the the hot foot issue sort of further up the chain. In, in many cases well, anyway. Well, I think when you're talking about mechanical pain, so if you're talking about knees and hips, I definitely think that's bike setup. But when you're thinking about the hot spots at, on an undersurface foot level, mm-hmm. it's very much about the finer detail. It's about your pressure map. It's about the forces that you generate. So for me, for example, you know, my foot type is a higher arch foot. I function like a tripod. So I've got a high loading point underneath my big first, uh, sorry, my, my, my big toe joint. So in and around the sesamoid area. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look inside, and this does sound a bit um, yucky, but if you look inside the liner on my cycling shoe or my trainer, you can see that indentation. You can see the pressure point. So that's about the simplicity of redistributing pressure. It's about the lumps and bumps you create around that site to deflect pressure away from what is probably an irritable area or a painful area. Okay. Uh, so with, with your big toe, how have you... How have you managed that, or is that just kind of a fact of life then? Well, for me, because my body's used to dealing with that amount of pressure, both often on the bike, and, and my time is predominantly on the bike these days, I don't get too much problems unless I'm doing multi-day riding. So if, I'm, if I've gone away on a training camp into Europe, for example, and I'm riding for three to five days, it's probably only at that point that my foot structure becomes relevant. So in that situation... I might do a cutout, which is where I take a physical area of uh, the insole away, or I might add a bit of softer material to the um, more towards the outside of the problem area, again, to deflect the pressure. So there's there's a few simple things that you can do to change those hot spots, using softer materials predominantly to, trick, to create cushioning around the area, not on the area. Mm-hmm. When you say soft materials, would that be like more padded socks, or what would that more look like? To, so, so the material that we tend to use is a material called poron, P-O-R-O-N. So it comes in sheet layers of 1.5 mil mil or 3 mil thickness. Mm -hmm. So you've got to to create a differential between the hot spot and the other part of your foot. Mm -hmm. Um, So all I would do is I would do um, a uniform material, probably about 3 mil thick, and then I'd do a cutout, a hull, where that would be where my big toe joint sits into, if you like. Uh, Underneath, we're talking underneath now. So you can deflect the pressure fairly easily by doing that it's a really simplistic approach it's relatively inexpensive um, people might choose to use felt for example felt self-adhesive backed and it just it just it gives you a trial option but mm-hmm. you don't put the material on the problem area you put the material around the problem area because right. if you put it on it you would increase the pressure not decrease the pressure yeah yeah it's interesting my my dad's a landscaper and used to be very into hiking and stuff like that and that would have been like a classic thing that you do with moleskin which is that like felt back yeah. uh, back to sticky stuff and i've never really heard of another like runner doing a lot of that but i won't go on like a hike or a long run without a like pad of it in my pack just in case yeah yeah it's i mean no so absolutely good. And sometimes intuitively people come in with a little bit of a design and, and they're slightly embarrassed saying, look, I've tried this and it actually really helps my pain. And you, and you look and you go, you know what? With the exception of the materials and the finish being better, the concept is entirely valid. Most people intuitively know what they want to do to protect painful areas. Um, and there's no better test run than them actually trying it for a couple of three weeks and you know, showing proof of concept really. And then mm-hmm. you've got 
the challenge of trying to build something that would reflect that design shape. So, yeah, I think for hotspots and things like that, there's definitely ways that you can uh, trial ideas out before you go and see a clinical specialist and, you know, start investing in in change. If you want to try things, then, again, use the right materials like moleskin as a starting point and, and work from there. Yeah, and I imagine for you, that's actually, like, great when someone comes in and they're like, I've tried these five things and, like, these were the results. It's, it's sort of Absolutely. setting it up to be much easier to to troubleshoot yeah and and yeah it is and and it's brilliant for it the worst thing though is somebody brings in something they've designed it helps their problem but it doesn't make mechanical sense that just throws (laughs) you completely and you'll you'll get a few of those i don't know why this works but it works (laughs) yeah exactly Oh, funny. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about cycling shoes and I had a friend ask this question, the, um, how do I fix my foot that's been squished in too tight cycling shoes for two decades? And I mean, I think the first and obvious answer is finding cycling shoes that fit comfortably, but that's, a that's a really hard thing, especially with road shoes, which I feel like were made for narrow doll feet. <laughs> no, great. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, you look at. Actually, if you look at the industry overall, I mean, I've been riding, I would say, on a uh, sort of a, a regular basis now, probably seven, eight years, and I've seen cycling shoes change marginally. I think the European shoes, like Giro, for example, um, I wear a, a really classic uh, Giro lace-up, which you wouldn't necessarily put with my foot type in terms of it being wide and deep. Um, but it works really well, and I think it works because it's a lace-up system, and it goes quite a way down the foot length. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at um, systems where you've got the boa-type um, connectors, that obviously relies on a little bit more intimacy to keep you in. So I think cycling footwear is or has options. So if you put in cycling shoes wide fit, then you'll come up with something within certain ranges. Um I mean, there's a, I don't know if it's in the US as well, but there's Rivello, R-I-V-E-L-O. And it's actually my indoor um, cycling shoe. It's super wide. I'm not sure I'd be confident to take it outside because it's, it's quite gappy in some key areas. Um, but actually, as, a, as, a, as their standard fit, it's the widest cycling shoe I've ever seen. Okay, that's good to know. So, yeah. This, this might be kind of a weird question for you, but since you're a cyclist, you might have a, a response to this. Um, using mountain bike shoes on a road bike with mountain pedals. Any feelings on that? Not at all. I think, you know, you've got to look at the interface is connecting. So that's irrelevant. I think the, the one beauty of mountain bike shoes is that they're generally better in terms of width and depth than road cycling shoes. That's what I've found. Yeah. You know, and, and the only I think the only downside to it is when you ride with a group that some of your group might be fairly snobbish about <laughs> the aesthetics of the bike. And that's bottom line. I've I've been called out on it a few times, you know, using drinks bottles that you've been given free on a sportive and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, my, I ride with lads who've got more money than sense. So they like kit and they like buying things that look, you know, decent. But I think if you've got a foot shape that is remarkably comfortable in a mountain bike setup on a road bike. Well, with with, that, with the exception of carrying a little bit of extra weight in the shoe, because that's essentially what it will be, it's still got the right connection to the pedals. Mm-hmm. But And if it's going to improve your comfort over a longer period of time, then why wouldn't you? 
Exactly. I felt, I got like laughed at during, uh, I did that for Iron Man and I got like laughed at, but then I'm like, you know what? I'm not limping into my running shoes. I'm feeling perfectly comfortable going onto the run. So there's that. I mean, that is a trade-off, you know, the, the, you get beyond the aesthetics, it's a comfort factor and, and what's, what's less appealing or more appealing than the limp or the fact that you're wearing shoes, which, um, aesthetically just don't look quite right, but who cares? Yeah, exactly. Um, so if someone has been, you know, basically like foot binding for years in these too tight cycling shoes because it was, you know, what their team was sponsored by or something like that. I mean, is there any, should they be doing any kind of like exercises for their foot or is it just like, okay, now, okay, you, you've recognized the problem. It's time to get new shoes. I mean, that, the, the, the last bit is the important bit is then to create a little bit more space because what will happen over time is that the digits, you know, if they're sort of retracted and look a little bit sort of cramped up, mm-hmm. if you give them if you give them space to splay into, they'll splay into them. It might take three to six months to see an obvious visual improvement. But if you don't change the environment, you're not going to change the shape. Mm-hmm. If you think about most of the like the tour deformities, the structural changes that we see within our patient group, it's going to be older patients generally. But it's certainly going to be patients that wear footwear, which has molded that shape over time. If you don't change the cause you're not going to see a structural shift. So first thing to do is, is, is understand that that shoe size is too small, narrow, shallow, whatever. And then, yeah, over time you will see, you will see an aesthetic improvement within reason in the shapes of the toes. And the within reason part is the age of the cyclist. If you're in your twenties to forties, I think you'll see a reasonable amount of change. If you're in your fifties to sixties, I think you'll have a little bit of wear and tear and a little bit of sort of fixed deformity, for want of a better term. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's no question, if you give the toes space to move into, they'll move into them. Yeah, yeah. I I guess like, you know, 20 minutes of wearing those like toe spacers at night is not going to be any, if you're not changing your actual shoes that you ride in for five hours a day, you're not doing a whole lot Exactly, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, and someone had asked about um, bunions. And so, I mean, first of all, could you actually just explain what exactly a bunion is? Because I feel like bunions and calluses get kind of tossed around as casual terms, but people yeah. don't necessarily understand what exactly they are all the time. So bunion is generally the the underlying bony change that occurs around your big toe joint. And... It, it, it relates in part. So if you're looking at your foot from above, weight-bearing, it's the, it's the movement um, in the outward direction of your big toe. Now, from a clinical point of view, we would classify it in four stages. So, you know, a small degree of structural shift is stage one, a slightly bigger is stage two. When the big toe connects to the second toe, it's stage three. So there's a, there's a process where we can, where we can classify that. People also refer to the bunion as the natural lump that would occur around the joint. And that's a slightly different one. So a bunion per se is joint line thickening around the big toe joint itself. The underlying structural entity is referred to hallux abductor valgus, so H-A-V. And that's the clinical condition that we would refer to. And I agree. I think they're, they're unfortunately interchanged. And they give a slightly um, different viewpoint to the underlying problem around the joint. Mm-hmm. Whereas, a, whereas a callus is a, is a soft tissue problem 
And I say problem. A callus is a, is a physiological response to high pressure. So it's the soft tissue change, which would be either the dermis, which is the skin, or the underlying soft tissues. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So if someone has a bunion and they don't want to have surgery or they're hoping surgery is sort of a last resort, is there is there anything you generally recommend for treating it or is it sort of a case-by-case situation? I mean, it's always a case-by-case. Case. I mean, that's, that, that's probably, yeah. But in terms of generalizations, you know, the reason why most bunions are symptomatic is compression. And that's because, you know, there's a compressive force caused by footwear. So footwear doesn't start the problem in the first place, but it will exacerbate the problem. Mm-hmm. So that's why when I'm seeing patients who are talking to me about their footwear choice over time, it's not what you're wearing now necessarily. It's what you've done historically. And if you chase that back over five, 10 or 15 years, there's a, you can be fairly sure that there'll be a compressive component to the big toe joint. And again, going back to pressure, pressure on the soft tissues develops the callus, pressure on the bone develops a lump. That's mm-hmm. a physiological response to pressure. So you can see how it's a sort of um, a perpetuating cycle. If you don't reduce the pressure, you'll continue to get this thickening over time. And it might take five, 10, 15 years to get to a a critical point where you've got to make a surgical decision. But in terms of conservative management, the obvious thing to look at is your footwear strategy. And this is where it's harder for females than males because male footwear tends to be a little bit more um, realistic in terms of foot sizing, whereas female mm-hmm. footwear can be quite narrow and quite shallow. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other dilemma, and I hear this time and time again, and I smile these days when I hear it, is patient x tells me that they're comfortable but the foot's tell the foot's telling me something else Mm -hmm. so i think you know that pain stimulus um is interesting when you look at the aesthetics i think the aesthetics sometimes dampers down the pain stimulus yeah actually i was i was sort of going to ask that just you know out of curiosity does it behoove someone if they look at their foot and i'm like well i'm not getting any pain when i run or i'm not feeling any like issues but when i look at it like this sort of like this thing seems funky or like this seems weird is it still worth going in and having it looked at if you're not having pain well it's interesting because if you did come to me with if that was you and you're coming to me with something that doesn't look great and there's signs of tissue change there all i would be saying to you at that point is i would be giving you the information that we're going through now which is this is the structural change you you maybe got stage two change in the big toe joint uh it might take you know five to ten years to get to a problem or at a level where we need to do more with it as in get a surgical opinion but in the short to medium term i would if i'm you with that particular problem look at my footwear choices find something with a little bit more depth or width or find something with a sole unit has got a little bit more stiffness and an external curve to reduce the demand on the big toe joint i'd be doing we'd be we'd be talking about factors or variables that would minimize the 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 escalation of that problem you know if you do the right things and you you buy more life into the joint it might be that you never need surgery mm-hmm. but if you con- if you continue doing the same things that are irritating the joint there's inevitability about that surgical con- conversation yeah yeah absolutely um, and so as far as toe, back to the bunion thing, I feel like I keep seeing toe spacers and a lot of people asked about them and a lot of people have just kind of been like, oh yes, I've heard toe spacers. Um, any feelings on those? Yeah, I think, um, if used well, so there's, there's two times, 
that you would use them. So I'll give you a brief story. I, I've never been a big believer in them as a concept. Probably until the last few years, I see a number of patients that have had big toe joint surgeries and they've gone well for the majority of the time. And then there's a few, a small number that might have not gone as well as anybody would like. And what you're left with is a slight problem in terms of the positioning of the big toe. Uh, you may have come across um, a bit of kit called Correct Toes, T-R-E-S, where it's like a, a bit of kit you pull on the toes. It's as if you're going to go get a pedicure and it keeps the toes separate. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of you know, other kits are available. So I'm not linked into anybody. It's just it's the concept of this. And, and what you do is you use it in a resting state. So I've had a number of patients that have had big toe joint surgeries, had problems, and not on my advice, but between seeing them at week six and week 18, for argument's sake, they've used bits of kit like this correctors, and I've seen a significant improvement in their in their toe alignment. And, and you can't ignore people's experiences. And it comes back to my earlier point. I need to understand the mechanics for me to be a believer. Um, so I think statically using gadgets out there that are designed to straighten within reason sort of makes sense for that type of kit i think where you're probably wasting your money is things like hallux valgus shields so these are the things that you'll see splints that sit on the outside of the foot and they try and pull the big toe across um i'm I'm not convinced on those um but lots of people do market them um, and market them well probably Mm -hmm. um and then you've got the weight-bearing bits of kit, so the little gels or the, the digit sleeves and things like that. And I think they're probably more useful for trying to deflect pressure off prominences. So if you've got like a toe that's retracted and pulled up, you put a soft gel sleeve over that, you're going to reduce the shear force to some extent mm-hmm. um, and, and cushion around the joint. So I think for a group of people, they can work quite well. And because they're relatively inexpensive, um, you know, you're talking a few dollars probably. Yeah. Then it's probably it's probably worthwhile trialing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, there's no harm, and if anything, it just kind of promotes the idea of like taking some time and like putting your feet up, like putting these things recovery. on, elevating your feet, recovering. Absolutely, recovery. Yeah. Um, okay. So the the other question we had was about um, metatarsal stress fractures. Uh, that's that's toe stress fractures, correct? Um, well, so the metatarsals are the long bones coming into the toes. The toes are oh, okay. the digits, so the, the wiggly bits at the end. So metatarsal stress fractures are the slightly longer bones in the middle part of the foot, okay. which are massively common to see, yeah. Yeah, and we talked a bit about the, the idea of stress fractures uh, last time you were on, and kind of the, I really liked the part where we talked about the fact that, like, it's, you know, there are probably much bigger underlying factors like within the whole body, not just, oh, you, you step down wrong. Um, yeah. But when someone does have a stress fracture there, I mean, how do you how do you handle it? Because are we supposed to just not walk around for six to eight weeks or what's what's the best protocol? Yeah, I mean, the, the balance is the key. Um, so with what the the dilemma on doing nothing is that you don't get the bone stress response to stimulate bone turnover and bone strengthening. And there's a massive window of not doing enough and doing too much. Mm-hmm. So having repetitive loads, so multiple cycles of your foot hitting the floor 
is sensible if it's your own body weight and you're not putting big impact forces through it. So that's why we would avoid running because you're going to generate six to eight times body weight for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so walking is generally advisable relatively early on, even in an offload boot. So whether it's an aircast walk or you know whatever your kit is to offload the foot, the reason you've been given that bit of kit is to allow you to weight bear and walk. So I would take advantage of that. If you do nothing at all, you're not helping the situation. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons as well, and I think we, we touched on it last time. You know, I would jump most of my patient group with a foot stress fracture, even in an offload boot. I'd put them on a bike, so they can maintain the cardiovascular health. Can get, you know, they can engage the brain a little bit. They can do things, which means that they're not sliding so far behind that fitness curve that they want to be on. Right. The yeah. time in the boot is the critical factor. So if this is a stress fracture then you would assume that if we can offload you for the first two to three weeks and then start getting you in transition footwear. And the transition footwear for me are things like the Nike Zoom Fly, the ASICS MetaRide Glide Ride, the um, New Balance Fuel Cell TC, because these are stiff four-foot rockers with a nice external curve, which takes you out of the extreme boot environment and puts you in an environment where you're getting back more into sort of mainstream-ish footwear. Mm-hmm. And I would be putting somebody in that from week three to week five to maybe week six maximum. At week six, you've got to assume that the stress fracture has consolidated. Now, whether you are or aren't managed imaging wise is up to your physician or physical therapist or whoever's managing you. But at week six, the assumption is if the bone health is decent enough, if they've done the right things in terms of rehab program, you can then start to reintroduce impact forces or And actually, even probably at week three to week six, you might get somebody in a pool swimming. So you can do some resistance work in the water. So that's foot against the um, the water itself. You might do weight bearing stuff in the pool. So again, the more submerged you are, the more you're you're taking body weight off. Or if if you've got access to an alter G where you can modify the weight that you put through your foot, so you might take it down to you know 20% of body weight or whatever you can do. It depends on on your access to that next stage of rehab. But the one thing is for me, for working in elite sport or working with athletes that want to get back to do things is that they need to understand where they are on that scale of recovery. Because there are timings you bear in mind. You know, four weeks is a good time for bone consolidation, whether that's a stress fracture or a fracture. The difference between having a stress fracture, which is a a crack in the bone and a fracture, which is a, a, a crack through the bone, is timing. Is you're probably going to add in another four or six weeks if it's a true fracture. Yeah, okay. So that's the issue. And, and, and stress fracture and fracture is on a continuum of bone damage, if you like. But my key message to my athletes is the first three to four weeks are fairly critical. You'll be pulling your hair out. So what I'm going to do is get you on a bike. If you don't like the bike, then we can get you on a rower. But we need to offload that foot because if we don't, then, you know, unless you can levitate, then you're putting load through the foot. <laughs> and if you can levitate, it, you probably didn't have a stress fracture to begin with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> there is that. You know, so again, assuming everything else is 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 at a certain level. So that goes back to bone health. I mean, uh, again, we touched on it previously. If you've got a history of stress fractures, then we need to look at you from a blood health or a bone health perspective and look at your bloods and markers like that. Mm-hmm. But if this is your first one and you follow that pathway accordingly, you will be back 
doing activity within probably six to eight weeks if everything's working well that doesn't mean you're back at full activity by the way it just means that we can look at reintroducing a return to run program and at that point it's micromanagement you know for me personally i get everybody running every third day so whether their average distance would have been 5k 8k or 10k doesn't really matter to me at that point what matters to me is time on the feet so i might run them 2k Mm-hmm. They recover for three days. Sorry, they recover for two days and they run on the third day. And I'll get them to do that four times at the same distance and ideally the same environment. And we look at how the foot's reacted. If it's reacting problem free, we'll put another K on the top of it, another four sessions. So actually, if everything goes in the right direction, they can probably be somewhere where they need to be on a return to run program within four, maybe six weeks of a return to run phase. Now, overall, I know what you're thinking. That's been 12 weeks, you know, so you've got your three weeks and six weeks before we even start running. Mm-hmm. But actually 12 weeks is a decent time frame for a stress fracture management. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you said that because I think a lot of people here are like, okay, off it for six weeks and then I can return to run. I'm going to return to run, like back to training, maybe even add some miles to like make up for it. Uh, yeah. So I'm really glad that you, you explained that gradual progression. That's that's perfect. I think a lot of people needed to hear that. <laughs> but and also the, the other the other aspect, and it comes back to the interim stuff. You can still go in the gym and actually going in the gym and doing sort of double leg press work where you're not putting any bending forces through the foot and it's not impact force. You're just putting straight leg press is absolutely crucial, one, for bone health and two, to maintain your your robustness. You know, we, we know that resistance work adds massive value. Uh, the one thing you've got to be careful of is and you've got to do it at some point, is doing doing your calf loading work. Because I, I, I obsess about the calves in terms of my runners, because it's the engine room. So I really like single leg calf raises. But the problem is, when you've got a stress fracture of the foot, or certainly a fracture of the foot, it's one exercise that you can't do until relatively later in the rehab program. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess the point here is, stress fracture rest. Six weeks, back in running. Well, that's going to keep me in business. If we offload for the first two to three weeks in a boot, have some transition footwear, start some strength work, make sure bone health is optimal, get somebody in a pool, get somebody on a bike, you almost start distracting them from the fact that they're not running because the week then is, is partly full of a little bit of strength work, a little bit of time on the bike, a little bit of swimming. So, Because if you give somebody nothing to do, all they will focus on is return to run and I've not run now for eight weeks or whatever right. it might be. And, that, and that's... That's going to break most people. I know what I'd be like if somebody didn't let me ride a bike for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I mean, I think we even touched on this last time, like all of that kind of goes into like, you're going to come back actually probably a stronger runner anyway for having done some of that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely worth it. Um, And then the last question that we got asked, um, actually was someone asking about a calcification lump on top of their foot. Um, any ideas what would cause that and how to make it go away? And I guess this almost kind of like comes into like that lineup of like bunions, calluses, and I guess calcifications. Um, yeah. So how would you end up with one of those versus a callus? Although you shouldn't really callus on the top of your foot, would you? So, uh, well, no, you can. You can get sort of little soft tissue lumps. Um, but the calcification I think they're describing is, is bone again. So calcification, uh, I think it's joint line thickening. So it's... Um, uh, the, the the physiological change in the tissue is more osteophytic change and that sounds quite geeky but that's just 
extra bond deposits that are being laid down generally across joint line margins. So the big toe joint will be a good one. So sometimes you can have some really interesting looking big toe joint shapes at the top, like a ridge almost. Um, and that's that's sort of wear and tear over time. If it's asymptomatic, uh, fine. If it's symptomatic, then um, you either get deeper shoes or you reduce the bending moment through the big toe joint by talking about, again, that performance footwear with stiff rockers. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, from a, from a surgical perspective, you know, there's a very simple procedure called a chylectomy, where essentially they, they chisel out a V either side of the joint. So they take away that extra lip, if you like, and you get more range back in your joint and you can get a fairly much problem-free joint for a good period of time. So, But that's only if it's symptomatic. Mm-hmm. There are There's another couple of areas around the foot. So if you run your hand um, through the top of your foot in the mid section, if you like, there's um, you can get a joint line thickening as well on the, it's called the first metatarsal cuneiform joint, so further up from where the big toe joint sits. That can be a fairly common area to see. And the reason why it becomes problematic is the lace-up systems on trainers. So when you're tying your laces, you'll put a direct compressive force on that lump. Mm-hmm. So what you can do in that situation is you relace your trainers to make sure that the crossover point is not on that lump, it's above and below that lump. So you almost miss out on eyelet, for example. And, oh, okay. and you'll, work out which one it ne- you'll work out which one it needs to be because if you lace it up and there's no pressure on it or you're minimizing the compression on it, then you'll probably function with less irritability. Yeah. Interesting. So I just kind of, kind of wrap that up then, like changing how your shoes are laced is also like a way of changing how they fit and stuff. You don't necessarily need to just like chuck every pair of trainers you have. You can actually try different lacing styles to kind of deal with some of these things. Absolutely. And it comes back to the, the aesthetics issue we talked about on the bike. You know, if you're comfortable and functioning well in a mountain bike shoe and a bike, then why wouldn't you? With a trainer, you can bespoke it yourself. If you With a lump on the big toe joint at the top, what's to stop you cutting out a hull to give that space to, to be in? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at some of the bumpers on the front part of trainers, um, I think ASICs is probably the one that comes to mind first. So the bumpers are the, the additional uh, material which goes across, across your toe area. Um, and it's there to reinforce the upper, but it, it acts like um, a stiffener. So if you've got structural um, retraction in your toes, it's more likely you'll get compressive force on that area or even the stitches would rub. So you just do a cutout. And over time, what your body does, it probably makes its own hole in there anyway, mm-hmm. which probably comes back to your first question, which is when do you get rid of shoes? <laughs> <laughs> um, there we go. <laughs> but but, but how, how you're how your footwear wears over time gives you a rough insight into where, where the pressure points are on the hotspots. Um, mm. So you either stretch them off in that area, you could take them to a, I don't know if you call them a cobblers in, in the US, but um, you're somebody who would modify the shoe upper and just do like a little balloon patch so that you know if you've got a rub at the top of your foot, you can stretch it off or um, get the material modified slightly. So there's ways and means of making what essentially is a commercial generic shape a bit more your shape because mm-hmm. over time over time you'll break that shoe down into your shape um but yeah little bumps and hot spots you can you can definitely offload them by modifying your lace-up system slightly or, or or similar things i love this and it's it's so funny how much of this sounds very similar to when we talk about bike fit and we talk about 
you know, taking a, sort of being the detective of, of your own body and in this case your own foot and like trying to kind of figure out, okay, let's let's try this little tweak and see how this changes and let's try this and see how it changes um, instead of just kind of like assuming that it's unfixable or assuming that yeah. you can't possibly figure it out or, you know, you, obviously at some point you need to talk to someone like yourself and figure stuff out, but like to not even try anything first um, it just seems really silly. Particularly if you, you know, if you've invested, let's say, you know, $250, $300 in a pair of cycling shoes, if you're going to wear them for two months, three months, and, and you just can't get comfortable with them, they're creating problems, and you decide to go and buy another pair of cycling shoes, what's to say that you're not going to have the same problem with there? So you're investing a lot of money on the, the potential of the new cycling shoe you buy. And I think the problem is that you're always case study one and you'll only have your own experiences. Whereas a clinician who might work with cyclists or runners or whatever sport it is, is pattern recognition. You've probably seen that problem dozens to hundreds of times and, and you've experienced the effect of making some quirky little tweaks. So, you know, I, I go back to the, the walking footwear industry and with people that have got these calcifications or these lumps and bumps on the top of the foot. You can make better fit scenarios for that for that walker or that hiker or whatever by just modifying lace-up systems or using things like tongue pads where you just deflect the pressure away from these bumps and lumps mm-hmm. rather than you chasing the magic shoe or boot that probably doesn't exist anyway yep. because of your, your quirkiness <laughs> and investing you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars in something which, again, comes back to, let's think about best fit scenario. As long as it roughly is the right shape and it's got the right characteristics for your foot type and the demands you're going to put through that then doing a bit of fine tuning shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because if everybody's foot was the same shape and the same size well life's going to be pretty dull <laughs> yes reality. oh i love it that's a that's a perfect spot to to wrap up on i feel like so let everyone know where they can find you where they can you know hopefully see what you're up to i know you have a couple of big projects coming down the pipe so people should definitely stay abreast of what you're up to yeah so um mark gallagher podiatry or my website is podiatricrx.co.uk um i'm also based at a unit in london called pure sports medicine so any of those searches should find sort of the type of things that we're doing and um yeah i mean there's 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 some education stuff on there um but yeah, any, any problems, then hopefully I'll be able to guide you in the right direction. Oh, amazing. Mark, thank you so much for taking this time again. Like I said, I, I was shocked at how many people were just obsessed with that last episode and had so many follow-ups. So I deeply appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and do a follow-up. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Thank you, Molly. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests. And yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs um, at consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram. uh, And I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week.